Well, we've been focusing a message series that we've titled A Royal Mess, Life Lessons from Flawed Leaders. And today we're going to double down on that and begin to focus on the failure of the first king of Israel, whose name uh, was Saul. So today and over the next few weeks, I want us to perform a post-mortem on Saul's reign and on his failure, his spectacular failure. And I want us to learn some of the things that brought him down. I want us to see some of these components to his failure because I think these same things can lead to failure in our lives. I think these same things can lead to failures in our families. They can lead to failures uh, with our children. They can lead to failures in our spiritual lives, our reputation, our finances, our legacy. I think for a church, these same things can lead to failure in a church. These same things can lead to failure in a denomination of churches. And so I want us to know how it is that Saul, King Saul, failed. I want us to do a post-mortem on his reign. So the idea is that in the next four weeks, we're going to look at the four components of his failure. And really, I believe that these messages will apply to all different parts of our lives. It's going to be a message for our church. It's going to be a message for families. It's going to be a message for married couples. It's going to be a message for uh, students. It's going to be a message for us all. But I want to focus in these messages on one specific thing. And it may really only serve as an illustration to some of the messages, but I want to focus some in the next weeks on the subject of stewardship and the subject of giving. And I wanted to tell you that up front because I know that oftentimes people have a lot of pushback when a pastor begins to talk about money. And so I just wanted to deal with that before we even got into it and say a few things about talking about money. So I've heard it before. When you talk about money, people say all that church ever talks about is money. Uh, Or people will say, they just want my money. Or sometimes people will say, Pastor, uh, why don't you just preach on what the Bible says and not just talk about money all the time? So let me just, let me just give a little rebuttal to those objections before we begin. First of all, the last time I preached on money, March the 4th, 2018, that's 1,680 days and 240 sermons. Now, that's probably not a good thing. I'm not suggesting that we're going to go that long again. Uh, But it's not true that all we talk about is money. It's pretty hard to catch a money message at our church. And then secondly, Jesus had much to say about money. Jesus had much to say about money because money is both an indicator and a determiner of the rest of our spiritual lives. If you want to know where you are spiritually, you can look at your money. If you want to determine where your affections go, how much you will love the Lord in the days to come, you can determine that by making some commitments with your money. Jesus said it this way, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so, While it won't be the only thing we talk about, I just want you to know going into this, that's one of the things we'll talk about. And it's an important thing for us to talk about. 
Now, I do have another word before we jump in, just a quick word to men, men of all ages, husbands, fathers, married and unmarried men, a word for our men. God has called you, God has commanded you to be the spiritual leaders of your family. Now, the world gets this idea of leadership mixed up very often. And when the world thinks of leadership, it thinks of who is the boss, who is in charge. But when the Bible says, men, that you are the spiritual leaders of your family, it's not so much a function of who's in charge as it is a function of who is responsible. Do you see the difference? You're responsible, men. You're responsible to help your family avoid the same failures that that came upon Saul's reign, Saul's family, Saul's life. Men, you are responsible. We are responsible. And I think we should hear in these messages, as we focus on the fall of Saul, we men ought to hear some special call to responsibility for our families, for our church, and for the places of influence that God has given to us. And so we're studying in 1 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 13. Really, we're going to look at two chapters today, chapter 13 and 15. We may come back to 14 at a later date. Uh, But 13 and 15 really tell the tale of the failure of King Saul. There are many verses here to read, and we're going to read some of them today. Uh, Over the next few weeks, we'll probably read them all, but let me just start by, uh, let me just start by telling you the story. So Saul is the king of Israel, the first king of Israel. The people had demanded a king. If you've been here in recent weeks, you've heard that story. And um, Saul was the king of Israel for 42 years, started as just a 30 something year old man and served a number of years, but his, his reign was a failure. Uh, Saul is... The king had as a primary duty to protect the nation from its enemies. The perennial enemy for the nation of Israel were were the Philistines. And so they're constantly fighting the Philistines. Uh, The plan is that we're going to go through all of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel. And I tell you, you're going to see a lot of the Philistines before we finish this, uh, this long series of messages. And so they were the perennial enemy. And so much of the king's task was to protect the people from the, from the wicked Philistines. And when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 13, that's exactly what's going on. Uh, the Israelites and the Philistines are locked in deadly conflict And Saul, as the king of the Israelites, believed that now was the time that they needed to launch an offensive. But God had told them, and you can read this back in 1 Samuel 10, God had told Saul, the king, that he couldn't launch this military offensive until he had this special worship service. And he couldn't have the special worship service until Samuel, who was the prophet of God, the leader, the spiritual leader of the people, that they couldn't have this worship service until Samuel was there. And so here, uh, Saul wants to lead this offensive. Samuel's nowhere to be found. But Saul knew that the command, the instructions, don't go into battle until you've done this worship service. And you can't do the worship service until Samuel is there to lead the worship service. But Saul decided to do it anyway. 
He decided to ignore the command of God. He decided to discount God's instructions, and he went ahead and he did the worship service. And then Samuel shows up. And I'll read to you just a couple of verses. If you're following with me in 1 Samuel 13, I'll read verse 13, a little of 14. It says, Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. We'll go much deeper into that passage in future weeks. But Saul had failed because he wasn't obedient to the clear command of God. And then Samuel says there'll be consequences. Well, then if we fast forward to chapter 15, we see that Saul does something very similar. Now they're in conflict, not with the Philistines, but with the Amalekites. And it's a similar kind of fight to the death kind of conflict. And God tells Saul through Samuel that he is to go and to attack the Amalekites and he is to destroy all of those wicked people, all the Amalekites. And he is to destroy all of their property. He is to destroy all of their animals. He is to burn down their houses. God says these wicked people will be wiped off the face of the earth and so go and and fight. Well, Saul goes and fights. God gives the victory. But Saul decides that he's not going to destroy all the Amalekites and he decides he is going to plunder their resources and take some for himself. So again, he's disobedient to the Lord. And then Samuel shows up. (laughs) It seems like every time Saul did something wrong, Samuel showed up. And so in chapter 15, verse 19, and by the way, I encourage you just to go home and read these two chapters. Uh, We will read most of them in worship service in the weeks to come, but this is just so good. And I'm only able to read a little bit today. But chapter 15, verse 19, uh, Samuel says, so why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? So there's much that we can learn about Saul's failure, and we will learn about Saul's failure. But we have one simple message for today. Lordship includes obedience. Listen to me. Lordship for Christ to be our Lord, that includes obedience. Let me just read to you a couple of places in the New Testament where Jesus affirmed that. Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the only the one who does the will of the Father. What was Jesus saying? Lordship includes obedience. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and not do the things I say to do? What was the Lord saying? Lordship includes obedience. Genuine salvation, listen church, always includes a commitment to lordship and always includes obedience. Have you ever wondered why when we baptize Uh, I ask people, what is your confession of faith? You wonder why we do that? What do they say? They say, Jesus is Lord. And that comes right from Romans 10, 9. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's salvation. You will be saved. And that salvation involves two things. It involves what you do. Jesus is your Lord. It involves what you believe, what you trust in, what you trust in. So lordship or obedience will characterize the life of a true believer. So that begs the question, is Christ Lord of your life? Are you obedient to the Lord? Now, here's the rub. Saul, King Saul, who we just saw has twice disobeyed the direct command of God, King Saul would have answered that question in the affirmative. If you would have said, Saul, do you obey the Lord? Saul would have said, yes. And I can prove that to you. Chapter 15, verse 20, when Samuel confronted Saul, Saul said, but I did obey the Lord. So how could Saul say that? Church, listen, Saul redefined obedience. He redefined it. It wasn't so much that he was lying when he said, I obey the Lord. I believe he just redefined what it meant to obey the Lord. And that was the reason he fell. If we could just boil it down to the essence why did Saul fall? Because he redefined what it meant to be obedient to the Lord. So let's take a few minutes. And if you're looking at your outline, we have these here for you. I want to quickly show you how Saul defined obedience because when I studied this, I, I saw a lot of noble in this. I, I saw a lot of, uh, a lot of, shadows of how I sometimes define obedience. So let's see his tragic redefinition of obedience. Number one, expediency trumps obedience. Is that true? Well, that's what Saul thought. Expediency trumps obedience. Saul believed that he should obey the Lord unless it was inconvenient. Saul believed that he should obey the Lord unless it was unpopular. Saul believed that he should obey the Lord unless it was difficult or unless it was costly. So he was all for obeying the Lord unless, unless, unless he was redefining what it meant to be obedient. Let me show you just a couple of verses. If you look with me in chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, Samuel asked, what have you done? And Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come in the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Now it'd be funny if that weren't so tragic. How did Saul justify this? He said, well, in this situation of life, Samuel, there was a wiser way to do this than the way God said do it. I know God said wait, and I know God said I needed to wait till you were here. 
But you've got to understand, this was a special circumstance. And in this circumstance, God's way was not the best way. There was a better way. And I did the better way. He was saying, God doesn't want me to obey him when obedience would make me less secure. Saul said, you don't understand, Samuel. If I didn't move forward, I would have been less secure. It would have been a dangerous thing. Saul said, I really didn't have a choice. I did what I did because of the circumstances I was in. Listen, obedience is not just doing what is expedient or what is convenient or what is easy or what is safe. Obedience is obedience, right? So the first way he redefined obedience is he just said, convenience or expediency, well, that trumps obedience. The second way is he believed partial obedience is obedience. Could that be right? Partial obedience. So now let's go over to chapter 15. Beginning in verse 14, it says, Samuel replied, then what is this sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? So Saul had said, oh yeah, we destroyed everything. Well, they hadn't destroyed everything. They kept all the livestock. And so uh, Samuel said, well, I I hear all of these animals. What, What do you mean you destroyed everything? What am I hearing? Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to sacrifice, in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Look at the last few words of that. But the rest we destroyed. What's his argument here? He said, we were mostly obedient. We were 80% obedient. The rest we destroyed. Our our disobedience is just a slice, but we're mostly obedient. And if you take 80% obedience and you round it up, Samuel, you get to 100% obedience. So we're fine. He believed that partial obedience is obedience. But that's not how God's math works. We talked a number of weeks ago, I guess back in the summer, um, we talked about fungible spirituality. Do you remember that? We just made it up. It's not something you'll find in a book, but uh, uh, sometimes we think we can be obedient here and it'll excuse our disobedience there. I shared with you that I had a pastor friend who, who actually apologized, I think, to his church. Uh, he hadn't said anything wrong, but, but it had been taken wrong. And he had He had said something I've said a bunch of times. Uh, God expects you to give your time, talent, and treasure. You ever heard that? Uh, If you've been here very long, you have. You probably heard it for a long, long time. Time, talent, and treasure. But he said some of his people had taken that to mean I'll give my time or my talent or my treasure. As long as I give a lot of money, I don't have to work in the church. As long as I work in the church, I don't have to give any money. And that it, you can exchange one for the other. We get this idea that partial obedience is obedience. But that's not how God's math works. If you were to go down to the bank with a $100 bill and ask them to change it into $20 bills and they gave you four of them, would that be okay? You would complain. They'd say, well, it's mostly right. <laughs> round it up. Or you'd say, no, give me six and we'll just round it down, you know. God demands and deserves full obedience. 
The third way he redefined, tragically redefined obedience. He believed that any lack of obedience is the fault of others or circumstances. We've already seen that in the verses we've read. Uh, You see it all the way through both of these chapters. He just blamed it on other people over and over and over. Uh, If you look at chapter 15, verse 21, he said, the troops took sheep and goats and cattle from the plunder, uh, the best of what was set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Saul said, it's not me, it's the troops. Uh, Now he wasn't upset about the troops doing it before Samuel showed up, but now that Samuel's there and he's caught, he says, no, it's not me, it's the troops. Saul essentially said, it's not my fault. It's the fault of some people. It's the fault of some circumstances, but it's not my fault. Uh, I think I'm a fairly patient person. I guess that would have to be judged by others, right? Uh, But I'll tell you where I, I know I have little patience. When I hear people blaming their sin on other people, and maybe I have little patience with this because I find myself doing it from time to time, but when I hear somebody say, well, I had an affair, but you've got to understand how my spouse has been treating me. When somebody says, I lost my temper, but you've got to understand what people did that led up to that. I took something from my employer, but you got to understand how my employer treats me. Listen, we, we all get in difficult circumstances, and, and, and certainly there are people who push all of our buttons. But my sin is my sin, right? And your sin is your sin. And Saul's sin was Saul's sin. Saul's sin. Number four, obedience is only really measured in the big things. And uh, you see chapter 15, verse 20, you can look that up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. We may come back to that. Number five, obedience is a function of the heart, not the hands. Now, is that true? No. All of these statements, by the way, are false. Don't write this down and let this be your definition. Uh, this is Saul's definition, and he's wrong. But he believed that obedience is a function of the heart, not the hands. He believed that his heart heartfelt worship was a substitute for actual obedience. Uh, Look at chapter 15, verse 22. Samuel said, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. That's one of the most important verses, I think, in all the Bible. He says, To obey is better than sacrifice. Now, he's not talking about having a sacrificial attitude where you're giving of yourself to serve others and love others. No, what he's talking about here is worship. He's talking about worship. They they would call that sacrifice because they sacrificed animals in their worship, but he's talking about worship. He says to obey is better than worship. Now, it's not saying that worship is not important. What I think he's telling us is that it's not real worship if there's not some sort of obedience. But what do people do? People do what Saul did. They will have all kinds of disobedience in their life, and then they'll go to church, and they'll worship the Lord. I remember years ago being in a church, and sometimes pastors know things that we wish we didn't know, but uh, I was... um, I was sitting and I could see where in this church, it was sort of in the round and I could see people worshiping and, 
And there was a woman who I knew was having an affair. It had come up in a counseling situation and I had been talking to the person with whom she was having an affair. So I look over, she is there every Sunday. I look over, she's got her arms in the air and she's waving back and forth and she's singing. and, And listen, none of us are, none of us have a righteousness of our own, certainly. And every person who comes to worship is a sinner. But I believed at that time that there was a woman who was seeking to cover over her disobedience with her worship. That's what Saul was doing. I know I took this, uh, these animals and this treasure, but I'm going to use it to worship the Lord. Samuel said, no, to obey is better than sacrifice. True worship comes from a heart of repentance and obedience. Psalm 24 verses three and four says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now we know that we come in the righteousness of Christ or none of us could come. But we can't worship with active rebellion in our lives. But Saul believed that obedience was a function of the heart. I love God. Not of the, not of the hands, how we serve the Lord. Obedience is not an attitude of worship. Obedience is a tangible, material, substantive, measurable action that adheres to the standards and instructions of the Lord. So Saul redefines Obedience. That's why he said, I've obeyed the Lord. I think he was convinced of it because he redefined what it meant to be obedient and he made it into a matter of convenience and expediency. And ultimately that's why he failed. That's why his family failed. That's why his career failed. His spiritual life failed. His legacy failed. Now I said, we're going to talk about giving. So Let's take that lesson about obedience that's so clear here, and let's just spend a moment or two talking about the subject of giving. Uh, The Bible, Jesus especially, presents giving as a test of our obedience because it is the most measurable part of our obedience, right? So the Bible says I should have a humble attitude. Well, how do you measure that? That's pretty difficult to measure. In fact, if you think you have a humble attitude, that's probably proof you don't, right? There are a lot of things that are difficult to measure. But our giving is not a difficult thing to measure, right? So this is, this is sort of the cheat sheet to our spiritual health. That's why Jesus says... Where your treasure is, your heart is also. This is why Jesus told so much about money. Jesus didn't need any money, but Jesus knew what money meant. So quickly, and I am going to go quickly. uh, Let me go through these Bible instructions to give. Uh, First of all, give financially. Uh, When the Bible talks about giving, it's not just giving your time and your talent. Uh, I could give you a number of verses for this, but... I'll just point to Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. 
even your business profits. And, and, and then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. It's a financial matter. Secondly, we're to give regularly. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside something. Our giving is not to be occasional. It's not to be when we have extra. It's not to be when it strikes us. Our giving ought to be regular, weekly or monthly. And there may be some unusual circumstance where people are giving on a different schedule, but, but our giving should be regular. I believe that annual giving, it's probably a dangerous thing for a pastor to say, but I am, listen, I'm concerned about our church's financial health, but I'm, I'm concerned about our spiritual health as well. So let me say this. I believe annual giving does not conform to, um, to God's pattern. Now, our church benefits from annual giving. And, and, and I believe you could do annual giving. If you're giving extra, some people, you know, have dividends or they, their financial life works, uh, you know, in ways I don't even understand. And that's fine. And so people will give more at certain times into the year, taxes. I don't know. There's all kinds of reasons for all that. But I think even with that, giving ought to be something that happens regularly. What if you said, I'm going to read my Bible once a year, but I'm going to read all of it. You know, I'm going to sit down and Tuesday through Thursday, I'm just going to read the whole thing the last two days of the year. Uh, is, you think that'd be good? You'd read as much as somebody else would read, but do you think it'd be good to do it all? What if you decided you're just going to pray once a year? And let's say you prayed 20 hours. You still probably beat most people in the minutes of prayer. But do you think it'd be healthy to pray just once a year? No, we need to give. And certainly there are people whose financial arrangements allow them to give large gifts once a year. But we ought to be giving regularly. Giving regularly. Uh, next, we should give proportionally. Malachi 3, 10 through 12 uh, bring the full tenth or the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord of armies, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I will rebuke the devourer for you. You somehow sometimes have the devourer uh, in your life. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not Ruin the produce of your land and your vine in the field will not fail to produce fruit. So a tithe means a, a tenth, 10%. Uh, now many should give uh, much more than a tithe for the glory of God and for the spread of the gospel. But the point here that I want to make today is that our giving should be proportional. It should be a percentage. And so if you have a very small income, a percentage is going to be a very small amount of money, but you should give it. And the way God measures that is that you've given greatly and God will honor that. And he will honor that in the ministry and he will honor it in your life because you've given proportionally. Now, maybe proportional giving for you is a whole lot of money. We well, ought to give it. And you've not given more than somebody else. God has perhaps blessed you with more. And so your generosity should rise to the level of God's blessing. We should give proportionally. Next, we should give eagerly and cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Right at the end of that verse you see on the screen. 
finally, God uh, give generously and sacrificially. Second Corinthians 9, 6, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but the one who sows generously will also reap generously. I hope you noticed on your way in that there was a bookmark in your seat in both services. Um, and it says, I only have one lifetime to. I'm going to give you one of these bookmarks every week. We'll do something a little different with it each week. But here's what I want you to write on that bookmark. And I'd like for you to place it in your Bible right here at 1 Samuel 13, 15. Would you write, I have only one lifetime to be obedient for the Lord. See, if there's anything that motivates my obedience, it's that. I'm a genuine child of God. I've been forgiven. My status as an adopted child of God will never change, give or not give. But I realize I have one lifetime to be obedient to God. And I want that to be true of this lifetime. I have one lifetime to be obedient to God. You know, we are here because God is a giver. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, there's not a person who is right with God because they've, they've earned it. There's not a person who's right with God because they deserve it. The only reason any of us are right with God is because God is a giver. He wasn't paying us back for something. It wasn't that he owed us something. It wasn't that he had to do this in order to be God or to be just or to be loving. No, we're children of God because God gave his own free will. He gave his son. God gave the son. The son gave his life, shed his blood for our forgiveness. The son paid the penalty for our sins. That's the expression of how God loves us. How does God love us? By giving us his son who gave us his life on the cross. That's how God expresses his love to us. How do we then express our love to him? By giving. I don't apologize for that because it's what the Bible teaches. By giving. By giving, by being obedient to what God commands us to do, to take the blessings in this life and just to be a generous giver. I only have one lifetime to be obedient to God. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Head bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. You know, obedience is important in every area of life. Giving is really just an illustration of that. We could preach this same sermon and talk about a hundred different things, and it would be equally true. 
If there's an area of your life with disobedience, because of the grace and the mercy of Christ, you could be forgiven and you could see God work in your life to bring change. Trust the Lord for that. When I speak of forgiveness, I get nervous as a pastor because every time I say, you better be obedient, I think of the ways I'm not obedient. None of us are obedient, but it's because God gave first and we can trust the Lord, his sacrifice on the cross. And then we make him our Lord. Father in heaven, may we take this one life we have and be obedient to you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Still in both services. Listen, just a moment. We're going to stand in both services. There are going to be people in the front. If we can help you walk with God, if we can help you walk with God to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, While we sing, you come in both services to the people in the front. Let us help you do that. Let's stand together.